respite. Uh, it's where the whole passage builds up on the newness of New Covenant worship. And that's really how we started this mini-series, talking about the newness of New Covenant worship. Jesus says, no longer in this mountain or in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. Um, New Covenant worship is done centered around Christ and the Word of God. It's not tied to a location, um, nor with rituals, nor a temple, but it's centered around Christ and the Word of God. And it's done with hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Um, then the second week, we, we, we actually that first week, our point two was also that worship is God's goal in redemption and in creation. Created everything for his worship. And the end goal of redemption is not just the forgiveness of sins, but the forgiveness of sins and everything you experience in redemption is a means to another end. God's worship. Um, we said it this way. His redemption enables you to worship him. And his, worship, his redemption obligates you to worship him. You owe him worship um, because he's your creator and now he's your redeemer. Then week two, we, we started talking about worship terminology in the Old Testament. And that, that's what this is here. And let me just uh, bring your attention to it quickly. Um, there's a couple Greek words there, and it's not meant to intimidate or to be nerdy in any way, but so that we can just investigate in, in detail um, some things that are going on. And we said there's these two prominent worship words in the Old Testament. First, there's this bowing or bending word, proskuneo, almost always associated with temple worship. And it involved the physical posture. You bend or bow down. Um, it... In it, there, there's a few things that are that are highlighted. Usually, it's a it's indicating an attitude of submission, or dependence, or thanksgiving, or fearful trembling. Um, they're sort of all packaged together in that that word, that posture was sort of the external manifestation, these internal realities of of the heart. And like I said, it was almost exclusively at the temple when there was a temple um, directed to a physical manifestation the presence of God. Then there's this other worship word in the Old Testament, latruo. It's this serving word group. And oftentimes it was built on the Hebrew word avad, which is the slavery word group. Um, so we remember God says, I brought you out of Egypt, slavery to Egypt, so that you would serve me. Same word. Um, the idea of ownership and service. So we see that worship also included a serving. One aspect of that is obedient devotion, and another aspect of that is joyful devotion. This is not hard slavery. God's service is rest. God's service is good. God's service is right for those who have regenerate hearts. And this word, you can see kind of small down here, it, it, it works itself out in two ways. The first is in commandment keeping. In the Old Testament, you served God. This kind of worship in a lifestyle of obedience to his commandments. Submission to him as Lord. Um, what's your way of worship? This word also worked its way out in the temple rituals. So the day-to-day -day ministry of the, of the priests in the temples, offering the incense and the, the burnt offerings and all those things. That was another way this word worked out. You put a big square circle around all of it, I would say that is worship in the Old Covenant. Then you come to the New Covenant, this is where we were last week, and see that both of these words carry over, but yet they're significantly changed. And I would say they're not simply changed, they're fulfilled. Everything that was anticipated in Old Covenant worship 
is now fulfilled. The essence, the expectation of it is fulfilled in New Covenant worship. Um, one thing we saw last week was really significant is that this word proskuneo, always associated with temple worship, it virtually disappears from the epistles. It's in the Gospels, where the, the temple worship's going on. It's in Acts. It's in the book of Revelation. But in the church age, this word is gone. And we said that has significant application. First, because it still applies to us. Jesus says, those who worship will worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's this word. So you still do this. this these heart realities are still carried out by you. But there's no outward constraints. You're not constrained to a building, to a location, to physical posture, and to all the rituals that were associated with the temple. But as we come to the epistles, this word stands out. It's everywhere for worship. When you see worship words in the epistles, it's that word. This idea of service. Um, latruo. Obedience and joyful devotion. So what we're going to look at today, we're going to sort of zoom in now to new covenant worship. What does that look like? Okay, so I, I, I sort of understand this basically, but how does this work out now in the epistles for the church? And we're going to see that both of these, commandment keeping in general, and the temple rituals are fulfilled by you, um, fulfilled by Christians, um, in their general day-to-day -day life, and in the corporate assembly of God's people. Um, so this is what we're going to look at this morning. So let me pass this out. We're looking at worship, specifically a life of worship in the New Testament. Pass those out. And uh, as we get going, I want to uh, begin by pointing a few things out to get us going. Um, I want to let you know sort of the way that I'm approaching the study. I'm thinking we're probably going to be on uh, doing this series a couple more weeks, this week and maybe, maybe next. And the way I'm going forward is now I'm not only looking for these two words, the occurrences of these two words, but I'm also looking for a few other things to help us investigate how to think through worship in the New Testament. Um, we're going to be looking for words associated with the temple. So we're going to sort of examine the epistles for sacrifice language, offering language, sweet aroma language. All of that is temple worship language. We're also going to examine the epistles for words based upon and related to that latruo word. So there's other ones like Letergeo and Latreia and Letergia. So you can hear that they're all very similar, but they have their own nuances. So we're going to look at related words. And then we're also going to look in contexts of temple. So you know, we've already seen in John, Christ is the temple. He's the fulfillment. He is the access point to the Father. But as we come to the epistles, we also see that your body is a temple. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But probably the, the primary way that temple language is used in the epistles is that the assembled body of believers is the temple of God. Not a building, but believers, as they assemble together, is the temple of God. And God's presence is manifested in a unique way when the body assembles. And therefore, worship happens there in a very unique way. So that, that's how we're going to be going through this, uh, these next couple weeks, thinking about worship for us believers. And we're going to try to get really practical. Um, as we investigate these, these uh, 
themes in the New Testament, it will become apparent that worship certainly involves this total life commitment, this 24-7, 365 submission and devotion to the Lord by, by commandment keeping. But we will also see that the majority of these instances that I said, these worship contexts in the New Testament, have to do with corporate worship or worship among the body. It's very significant. Only a handful of places that I found actually have to do with worship uh, in your day-to-day -day life. That's a very true thing, which is very interesting how it so centers around the corporate assembly. So I want to begin by, uh, by showing you another little diagram here um, and uh, help you uh, think through this here. So we got two circles, and uh, I would put the first circle here, that, the out, outward circle is this lifestyle of worship is what we're talking about. Everything, 24-7-365 is, is worship in your life, ought to be. This idea of everything is coming up under the lordship of Christ, submission to him, devotion to him, love, service to him. And then I would put corporate worship as a circle in the midst of that. Okay? And what I mean by that is this, what's written up there. Corporate worship exists as an essential ingredient comprising a part, but not the whole. You can see it's not the whole. There's other things, other ways you worship God. It's a part, not the whole, of a Christian's life calling of worship. It cannot be neglected, but neither should it be made the sum total. So that's what we're saying. There, there's your life of worship, um, and yet corporate worship is a very significant element in it. David Peterson said it this way, it may be best to speak of congregational worship as a particular expression of the total life response that is the worship of the new covenant. That's what it is. So it's not everything, but it's significant in the New Testament. In other words, we ought to be a worshiping people in all of life, not just the spiritual things, but with lives devoted to Christ's lordship. But we've not been saved in isolation. We've not been saved to just live out the Christian life on our own. We've been made part of God's redeemed people. Part of the local church, when assembled, is God's temple. And so worship takes place here in a very unique way. Um, so I'm going to emphasize a couple things. They're on your outline, just as we're thinking through this diagram here. <clears throat> Some things I want to emphasize. Um, what's the relationship here? Number one... The corporate assembly of believers is a core expression of the worshiping, serving lifestyle that should characterize believers. So you can see it's a core expression. It's not everything. This is the primary way you express your devotion to God is in the corporate assembly, the local church. Number two, this assembly of believers is unto the growth and maturity of a worshiping, serving lifestyle. In other words, corporate worship is not the sum total of our worship, but it's an important nutrient. And if you neglect it, the rest of your time not in the corporate assembly is going to be malnourished. It's going to be affected. So you can't separate the two. Like, I'm just going to do one or the other. It has to be the sum total. They work with one another. John MacArthur put it this way, the source of most of the problems people have in their Christian lives relates to two things. Either they are not worshiping six days a week with their life, or they are not worshiping one day a week with the assembly of the saints. We need both. 
So that's what we are after this morning. And there's no better place to illustrate this than Romans chapter 12. So I invite you to turn there with me. This is where we're going to be most of the time this morning. And then we're going to do a big survey of the New Testament next week with all these worship terminology words. Romans 12. Very familiar passage. Probably everyone in this room could quote um, the beginning of it, I would assume. Um, very familiar, but it's massive. It's very pinnacle in, in Paul's theology and in the book of Romans, especially. You can see on your outline here how I've divided it up. Pretty natural. Most of your Bibles probably have it divided this way. Verses 1 to 2 define our worship expressed in a total life commitment built on the mercies of God. So there it is. Verses 3 to 8 tell us that worship is expressed in practical commitment to the body of Christ. And then verses 9 through 20, worship is expressed in a life of unhypocritical love. In other words, this whole chapter is a fleshing out of what it means to be a new covenant worshiper. What does this mean? So let's work through it. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul has just spent 11 chapters unpacking the gospel. This is one of those massive hinge passages of, of Paul's letters. 11 chapters of gospel. Very few commands. They're sprinkled in there, but it's almost all indicatives. This is what God has done for you. If you are a believer in Christ, this is who you are. This is what you've possessed. This is God's glory on display in the gospel. And then he pivots in verse 12. Therefore, therefore, brothers... Because of all that's true for you, because of all that God has done, this is how you ought to live. This is what should characterize your life. Um, he now says, by the mercies of God. I think the best translation, the idea there is, because of the mercies of God. It's the gospel. Because of all the mercy you've received, which is yours by faith alone and Christ alone, this is how you ought to live. This is what it looks like. That's what he's saying. This is exactly what we noted last week from Hebrews 9. Remember that passage? The blood of Christ cleanses the conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. It's the, the idea here. You're enabled to service. The, the, the wrath and judgment and displeasure of God's not looming over your head anymore. You have favor with him. You have mercy. And now you don't spend your life just trying to evade him, but to give yourself totally for his service. That's what Paul's saying here. Because of God's mercy. You've been enabled to serve. Say it another way is Paul is giving us the proper place of God's law in our lives. God's law is not bad. The first function of God's law is to expose us, to show us how we have failed to meet it, to drive us to his mercy. But then once we've received mercy, he brings us back to the law. Not to earn God's favor, but now the law is, is the railroad tracks. It's the guidelines within which now we express our devotion to God. We express our love to God. We express our service and our faith and our dependence on God by living within these boundaries of his law. His law is good, but you have to begin with his mercy. That's what Paul said. So because we've have mercy in our lives, we are now able to come to God's law and use it rightly as a way to be directed to respond to God with worship. 
And all that follows from here is a faith-filled response to God who has already shown us mercy. So look what Paul says next. Because of God's mercy, brothers, therefore present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So here's a temple worship word, right? Sacrifice. To present a sacrifice was to offer a sacrifice in the temple for worship. Look what this sacrifice is. What is it? It is your bodies. The very physical word. Your bodies. Being a Christian is not just a matter of things on the spiritual plane. We live in a very platonic society. By that mean, I mean platonic philosophy, this idea that the spiritual, those things that are otherworldly, that's what really matters. And the earthly, eh, it's so, so what God really wants is these, these things here, the, 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 these uh, heavenly, otherworldly, spiritual, experiential things. It's not unimportant. That's not all it is. Paul is saying God is concerned about your bodies, the physical, the here and now. It must encompass all of life. Your bodies matter, is what Paul is saying. The physical day-to-day life in God's world matters. Paul is saying that your bodies really matter. Being a recipient of God's mercy has implications on all of life, not just the spiritual things that we do. Everything falls under Christ's lordship. Everything is to be submitted to him and used for his purposes. That's what Paul is saying here. I'd say this confronts our tendency to elevate our spirituality by examining only our experiences in worship, only our performance and worship activities, Bible reading, praying, singing, whether at home or in church, and evaluating the level of my worship just by those things. Those things are important, don't get me wrong. But Paul's saying that's not it. That's not everything. Worship encompasses all of life. Uh-oh. <laughs> and we're going to see as this chapter unfolds that bodily worship has implications on my personal life and on the corporate life. So true spirituality encompasses all of life. Through redemption, in other words, God restores us, our bodies, to its proper function. We were created to do what? Remember, go back to the first lesson, to serve and worship God with everything in his world, in his creation. It's good. The physical is good and important. Thomas Schreiner put it this way, genuine commitment to God embraces every area of life and includes the body and all of its particularity and concreteness. Before, our bodies were used to serve sin. But now, being redeemed, they are to be used in very practical, concrete ways to serve God. That's what Paul's saying. Hold your hand here. Go over to Romans 6. Very, very similar language here. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 13. Listen to this similar language. Do not present, same word, your members, your body, to sin as instruments or weapons to be used for unrighteousness. That's what we used to do. That's what characterized the unbeliever's life. 
but present yourselves to God. What? As those who've been brought from death to life and your members as instruments or weapons to be used for righteousness. That's the idea. So you see how physical it is for practical obedience in contrast to my former life, which is devoted to sin with my members. Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourself, same word, to anybody as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves, there it is, present as slaves devoted to, owned by, Righteousness leading to sanctification. So you see, you hear what Paul's saying is the old life, you're always going to be devoted to something. You're always going to be presenting your members to something. And Paul says now, because of God's mercy, present it yourself and all of your abilities and everything that you possess and are to God for his service. Very physical, very tangible. Just as sin was physical and tangible. So what is to characterize this sacrifice of our bodies? Go back to chapter 12. Three things. Present your bodies a sacrifice. So I think the best translation here. Not a living sacrifice, but present your bodies as a sacrifice. And he gives three qualifiers. A sacrifice that's alive, holy, and acceptable. Let me hit these very fast. Alive. I think the point here is not to say... We're alive in contrast to the dead animals in the Old Testament. No, you didn't bring a dead animal to sacrifice. You brought a live animal to sacrifice. So that's not what Paul's contrasting here. He's saying you are a sacrifice that's alive, meaning you're spiritually alive, right? We just read that in chapter 6. Present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. So now you've been made alive by regeneration for God's purposes. Now present. Present yourself. I'm yours, God. Everything that I am. Number two, it is holy. That is, our bodies are being animated by life now. We are to consecrate, separate ourselves unto. That's the idea of holiness. Separated unto the purposes of God. Dedicated. Present your bodies as totally dedicated to God. Number three, it is acceptable. This reminds us of the fragrant aroma that God smelled in the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They would offer the offering, and God said, it's a pleasing aroma. It smells good. I'm pleased. I'm satisfied. That's what he means. This life is pleasing to God. It's acceptable. And look then at the end of verse 1 how Paul summarizes it. This is sort of his summary statement. He said, this is your reasonable service. Now, everyone in here should have their antennas going up, right? Service. What is that? That is that worship word, latruo. This is the noun form, latreia, right? It's the noun form of worship. This is why some of your translations translate it worship. It could go either way. It's worship, but it's a service worship. And in the Old Testament, this noun, right, not to get too technical, this noun of service is always used in the temple rituals. It's always used for the priestly 
activities during the day, offering the incense and uh, burnt offerings and all the activities in the temple. In other words, those things are being fulfilled in your life right now. As you devote yourself in total submission to God in your lifestyle worship and especially in your core activity of corporate worship. That's what Paul's saying. That's your service. He also says it's reasonable. Um, some of your translations have spiritual. Um, that doesn't mean that these sacrifices are primarily spiritual, right? We just saw they're bodily sacrifices. This is very physical stuff going on here. The word is logicane. Um, you can hear our word logic in there. This is logical sacrifice, Paul is saying. The basic idea is it's rational, it's reasonable. This response to God's mercy is extraordinarily reasonable. That's what Paul is saying. You can say it this way. To respond this way to God's mercy is the only logical response. So he's saying, this is reasonable. What else are you going to do? How else are you going to respond to the mercies of God in your life? Except total devotion to him. Thomas Schreiner again says, Paul's point is that it is eminently reasonable given the mercies of God, for believers to dedicate themselves wholly to God. And uh, you probably hear the words of the hymn here, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. That's the idea. Be constrained by God's love and then devote yourself to his service. Look at verse 2. We're going to unpack this now. What, um, is he, uh, what is he saying? He recasts what he just said in verse 1 in different terms in verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world. So what's your spiritual worship look like? Stop being pressed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, reasonable worship looks like transformation into the will of God. So it's very practically speaking. So offer myself as a sacrifice, what does that look like? Paul says... It looks like being transformed to the image of God, to his will, to his will. That's what it means to offer yourself in reasonable service. Stop being pressed in the mold of the world and be progressively transformed to the image of Christ. You say, how? Paul tells us. By the renewal of your mind. As your thoughts, as your reason is made new by truth. As you replace the lies of sin as you replace the untruth of a depraved mind with the truth of God's word. You think God's thoughts, you replace those, you, you battle on that level. The spring of sin is our minds. That's where it begins. And Paul says, we begin this battle by filling our minds with truth, believing the truth, and submitting our wills to that truth by faith. Stop being pressed in the mold of the world. Be transformed by filling your mind with scripture and submitting to that faith. That's what he says. And look what he says at the end. He says it's good and acceptable. It's that word again. It's very pleasing. So does an acceptable sacrifice to God look like? It looks like a life that is transformed to the will of God. That you may know and discern to do the will of God. So it's very practical. What does it look like to offer yourself a sacrifice? Submit yourself to God's will. You can do that as you train your mind to combat the lies of sin. 
So verses 1 to 2, worship is expressing a total commitment of life to God. Um, it's very practical. It encompasses Monday through Saturday and Sunday. It's personal, day-to-day -day living, and corporate. It's, it's all of this. So I'd say verses 1 to 2 is this. Everything you see up there. But then Paul goes on in verses 3 to 8 to now zoom into this. Verses 1 to 2. And show us how it is practically fulfilled. He says that worship is expressed in practical commitment to the body of Christ. I'm not going to work through every verse here, every word. We don't have time. I just want to make a few points. Um, so let's read it really quick. Verses 3 to 8. Now by the grace given to me, I say to every one among of you. So look at how he begins. Four. He's not starting a new discussion here. He's continuing it. Every one among you. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members. The members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Prophecy, proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, when it does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is very significant. What's going on here is so helpful. This whole paragraph is centered around life in the local church. I get that. Your total life commitment to God is expressed first in a total commitment to your brothers and sisters in the local church. Feel the weight of that. I would say this is a very good diagnostic tool to use to evaluate our worship, whether or not we have this going on. I would say don't merely examine how the prayer life is going, how the Bible reading is going, how the, how the singing and all that. Those are good things. Do those. But if that's all you have in your private life and you neglect this, Paul says you've neglected the core of what it looks like to be a devoted worshiper of Christ. This is significant. This is where Paul immediately goes. This worship, verses 1 to 2, finds expression in your service to the body with the gifts God has given to you. You want to do verses 1 to 2? Start to serve the body of Christ practically. In practical ways. There it is, your body. Practical. It's not this spiritual, mystical stuff. There is the affection. There is the experience. There is the devotion and worship of God with our hearts. That's not where Paul goes first. He goes to the body, the physical, these practical things. It's the only place that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's not the only place we do it, um, but it is central. Don't neglect it. Look at next in verses 9 through 21. Worship is expressed in the body using our gifts, and then worship is expressed in a life of unhypocritical love. Look at verse 9. English, it says, let love be genuine. In Greek, there's no verb. It just says, unhypocritical love. It's like the title of the section. So, unhypocritical love, underlined, bold, and everything that comes after it is explaining it. Um, the rest of the verbs are all subordinate. So, it's literally unhypocritical love, by abhorring what is evil, by holding fast to what is good, by loving one another with brotherly affection. Again, this is the will of God. What's the will of God? Right here. You want to worship God? Do these things right here, first and foremost. 
It's a life of unhypocritical love, genuine love. We don't have time to read it, but let's just look cursory over it. Let me just highlight the commands. Abhor, hold fast, love, outdo, don't be slothful, fervency, serve, rejoice, patience in tribulation, uh, constant in prayer, contributing, seeking, blessing, not cursing, rejoicing. It's massive. So let love be genuine. All these commands have to do with the horizontal plane, in other words. Worship engages God on a vertical plane, but if that's all you have, you've neglected a massive part of worship. Paul doesn't even go there. He says, worship God with your bodies in the horizontal plane. It works itself out in all areas of life, in all relationships, in all arenas. Notice all the one another commands here. We're still in the body of Christ here in verses 9 through 13 and in many of these verses. Um, You serve God as you serve one another. That's an incredible implication, Paul's saying. You want to serve God, serve the body of Christ. Um, Look at the sheet that's attached to the back of your outline. I took this from C.J. Mahaney's. Adapted it from there. Um, Why small groups? Um, added a few and uh, rewarded some of them, but this probably isn't all of them. It's not exhaustive, but um, it is a, a good starting place. There's a lot of one another's here. Give yourself to these. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Be joined to one another. Affectionately love one another. It's a lot of work to do. And I would say right here, you don't have your application yet. These are still the principles and commands. You have to work it out in the day-to-day. Who can I serve in the body? Where's there a need? How has God equipped me specifically now applying it, working it out in my life? I give this here for your personal reflection. I'm not going to go through it. You want to serve God? Get busy doing this. That's what Paul's saying. Second, there's commands in this list that are how we relate to outsiders. Not just those in the church, but now get into our day-to-day life. And not just outsiders, but those who hate you as a Christian. Those who would persecute you. Look at verse 14. Bless those. You want to worship God with your body? Bless those who persecute you. Do good to them. Don't curse them. At the very end, to the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. See how tangible it is. It's very physical thirsty, give them to drink. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Paul says that this requires you to offer your body in very tangible ways to God as a sacrifice to worship. Again, I would just say we don't worship God however we want. Old Testament or New Testament. We always do it in line with his truth. How? By being directed by his commandments. By his will, right? Discerning his will. What is that? Right there. That's as well. It's our only logical response. Having been mercied, this is our only logical response to devote ourselves to Him. And Paul says this is the temple rituals fulfilled. It's fragrant, it's acceptable. That's a motivation in itself. God is delighted as you give yourself to this kind of worship. So I have implications on the back. Before I go through those, any questions or comments? On this, we are going to flesh it out more next week with some of these uh, 
worship terms, we're just going to do a survey through the New Testament and just see um, more practical ways this has worked out. Um, any thoughts, questions, comments? A quick question, Michael. Yeah. <clears throat> so the, the prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and acts of mercy, would you say that encompasses every aspect of church service, or do you feel like that was more of just an overarching kind of survey? So you, the service, you mean what we do, say more, sit down, sing songs, preach, all those things together? I just, I just know we're, we're very quick to like compartmentalize uh -huh. things and categorize things. Uh -huh. Do you see that as an all-encompassing service to the local church? Sure. So I would not say does everything fall under this category? Sure, I would not say that is an exhaustive list. Right. Um, you can go over to First uh, Corinthians twelve. We've been doing it at Grace and Granite. Um, there's a list there. There's sign gifts there. Um, they have not continued. They've ceased. But there's also a number of other ones. Administrations helps. Paul said there's a number of things. I'd say the, these are um, big categories, examples of ways. Um, in First Corinthians, Paul uses the word various so many times. Various kinds of helps, various kinds of service. I mean, you've been gifted in a unique way for a unique service to the body. You're essential. Every one of you. I don't care if you're an eye, an ear, a nose hair, whatever you are. I don't think there's any nose hairs in here, but you all have a function. You're all important uh, for the body. Um, and uh, But there are other elements. We're going to get next week what we do in the formal corporate assembly of the scripture, reading the scripture, of singing, praise, all those as well are included in this corporate worship. Um, just very interesting. Paul's talking about worship, and he goes immediately to the devotion of yourself to one another for Christ's sake. Very interesting. So, yeah, Mike, yeah. The, uh, the, the verse in Romans 12, 2 about renewing your mind, to me it was a pinnacle verse mm -hmm. for scripture memory. Yeah. And the idea, too, is that we worship with our minds. Exactly. You know, it's not just emotions. Yep. You know, something we talked about yesterday yep. quite a bit, right. but that, you know, that uh, we need to have that renewal in our mind. Yep. It's excellent. Yep. We worship God with the entirety of our being, and it's not this emotional fervor. And you might not get the emotional buzz. doesn't mean you're not worshiping. It's good. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? All right, look at the implications. Let me do them really quick. <clears throat> Number one, those who make worship an entirely private experience have greatly misunderstood it. Yeah, there's the private. You better be nourishing your soul in the mornings or whenever you do it on the word, prayer, and singing to Christ, and even in the corporate assembly. But it must not stop there. Christ is Lord over all of our life. And he deserves devotion from all of our life, the physical and the spiritual. Number two, we're to worship God in his ways. We've already said that, in line with his will, not however we think is best. Number three, practically seek ways of enslaving yourselves to others. That's what Paul says in Galatians. And love, serve one another. That's that doulos word. Enslave yourself, give yourself, give up your rights for the well-being of another person. That doesn't feel <laughs> like worship because we are so given to self-love um, feelings. It's not it. It's give up yourself for Christ's sake for the well-being of another. Number four, daily work these principles out with intentionality. Seek ways to think through how 
You can practically put these things into practice in your life. Number five, keep worship God-centered. What I mean here is that we're not worshiping people when we are devoting ourselves in service to them. That's not what we're saying. What are we doing? We are devoting ourselves in service to one another for Christ's sake, right? Because of the mercies of God. Because it's a fragrant offering to God. Because this is the will of God. You see, I'm not worshiping you as I serve you. I'm worshiping God. How? By submitting to his will, which looks like devotion to the body of Christ. Keep worship God centered. So it's good. The scriptures are so clear and um, so good. And none of us do this perfectly. That's why we begin and keep coming back to the mercies of God. Present yourself because of his mercy. <laughs> you don't deserve to do this. It's a gift. And I uh, certainly couldn't do it on your own. It's by his mercy. So rest there and then get busy. Any other thoughts before I pray? All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. You're so worthy. How else should we live? Father, I confess I'm so foolish often. I don't give you the worship you deserve. I don't offer reasonable worship. I so easy to take your mercy and run doing my life. So illogical. Father, help us to be reminded by your grace what we have experienced in Christ. And devote ourselves in total life commitment every day of the week, every hour, to submission to your will and seek practical ways this week to serve one another. We love you, Father. Bless your word. Help us this Thanksgiving as we go and uh, celebrate with family. May you be honored. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.